My entire life has been waiting for this moment where I would get to guest star on Tetsu. I'm serious, I was overcome. I'm serious, his name was... I just woke up. So are you, I'm not, not going to yeah. be uh, firing <laughs> off all cylinders for a little while. <laughs> you, you're, you're okay health-wise, though. Yeah, yeah. Recovered. Oh God, I haven't. I still haven't really recovered from the whole um, trip overseas and the conference thing. I'm still feeling like really tired, and my sleep patterns are a bit um, messed up. That's what happened last night. I went to sleep at um, about four o'clock in the morning. Oh, God. Which is not too, you know, okay, that happens sometimes. Normally I manage to get out of bed by 10. Mm. But um, I I have bought this new thing <laughs> called the Sleep Master, which is an eye mask with um, padding over the ears. So I can't see anything or hear anything. Um, right. Before this, because light really disturbs me, wakes me up really easily. Before this, I was using a... Um, just a pillow edge on over my over my <laughs> eyes. I saw you you had something on your face uh, um uh, in Edinburgh I saw. Yeah yeah that was um that was just what I bought in the airport you know for sleeping on the plane. But when I got oh. back I thought well I might as well like get a good one of those since I want something I want something like this forevermore. Yeah. So the last night I didn't put it on until I woke up at about seven with the light after having got to sleep right. before, and I thought, I'm going to put on the sleep master. And next thing I know, it's a, it's 11.50, and I'm like, oh, no, 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 I've got to get to oh, the podcast. Oh, oh. <laughs> I did a really weird thing last night. I went to bed before midnight. I was, I was in bed at like 11 o'clock because I made an, I've been telling myself to get to bed early, which for me is before midnight, for weeks, and I have, I've been staying up repeatedly. And so I can't, I can't go to bed before 2 o'clock because I'm so into what I'm doing. And... Yeah, and last so last night I didn't go on the computer. I watched what did I watch? I watched something on television. A couple of things are a couple of things Tony watches. I sat there on the settee with her, so I felt quite good about myself. So um yes. Um So you're well rested and I'm uh... So I'm I'm unusually well rested. I've had more than eight hours sleep. Yay! Yay! <laughs> have you seen have you seen the amazing Tetsu homage done in the style of Pendleton Ward's Adventure Time. I have. Is... <clears throat> now, it looks great, but I I don't know anything about Adventure Time. I've never seen it. I've never really... I only looked up the art style after seeing the Tetsu homage. Mm. So what is Adventure Time and why should I care? Well, uh, you may not care. Um, it's uh, what is Adventure Time? Well, it's kind of it's a cartoon series based in the land of Ooh. To, uh, Finn the human and Jake the dog are the two main characters. Their main enemy is a guy called the Ice King, and basically, I think they're on like oh, I don't know seven or eight seasons now. It's it's just uh, about their adventures in the land of Ooh and the battles they have with characters and the other things they meet along the way. It's really good, and I've just done a brilliant. Uh, description of it <clears throat> or not um, yeah why is it yeah. so good is it funny or well i don't know you have, well you have to watch it it's 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 very well animated it is funny it's got kind of you know like um 
Yeah, it's great. <laughs> compelling to, drama? Compelling. It's great. I'm trying to think of like a... I can't... Re- my mind is a blank. I cannot think of any <laughs> classic Adventure Time stuff at the moment. Um, the, the one with the Lich and Princess Bubblegum... Uh, oh, the, the the there's a gender. One of my favourites is the gender bender episode, where all the male characters are female, all the female characters are male. Instead of be, instead of being called Fiona and J- Finn and Jake, it's called Fiona and, and Cake. Cake being a cat instead of a Jake the dog. But um, um, oh uh, yeah, I just just Adventure Time. Check it out. <laughs> um, but I, I I I get into all this stuff obviously because I have children. I have like a four year old and an eleven year old, so that's my excuse. I probably wouldn't encounter this stuff. Were it not for them, because I'm not, um, I, I don't really like watching television, and yeah. I don't know stuff. I I can't really be bothered with a, a lot of pop culture stuff, but um, things like uh, Adventure Time, regular show, um, My Little Pony, all, <laughs> all that stuff. <laughs> um, there's loads of questions coming in on Facebook. By the way, I've just I've just published on Tetsu on Newts now. Quick rant about a very quick rant. Don't worry about about mm. blogging. Mm. Is something like Tetrapodology? You've got to keep an eye on your hits. You do have, keep, have a basic idea of how many hits you need to keep in it coming in a day in order to sort of stay. Otherwise, it can get out of control. Too many people looking at your blog. Well, yeah, that's it. You're always trying to you're always trying to stop a, lo- a lot of people looking looking at your blog. But if you stop posting for like say three days because you physically can't for whatever reason, the number of hits skyrockets and you have to kind of quickly post something new to get the number back down <laughs> or the other way around um so but so yes yeah, so so well, it's today's monday i was a bit surprised to find that it's a monday today and uh, the days all blur, blurred into one lately and um, yeah there's there's the number of hits has, has again gone gone up massively so i'm like whoa i need to post something new so quickly did i just threw something together on newts because uh i mean to i, I need i need some uh salamander coverage um the half-life of a blog post on the internet is about a day i would say isn't it um well i would say that one thing that makes tetrapod zoology especially good in the blogging world is the um extensive like commentary that happens in the, the the discussion that goes on in the comments section which if you look at so many other blogs uh not only at scientific american but basically scientific blogs i think all over the place the number of comments is is typically pretty low, whereas Tetrapod Zoology, if I leave an article on, I don't know, you know quite a range of diverse subjects, um, we get a lot of a lot of comments, and you know, talking like over fifty or sixty comments. I think the the recent Cecilians article, uh, what was that? That was like over fifty comments. That's insane. Um, and for that reason, I would say that Tetrapod Zoology does have a longer half life than you might expect. It, the the number of hits stays high, and even increases after a couple of days. For that reason, because there are lots of people not only engaging but also um, checking to you know see see what's going on, particularly if it's something that's slightly controversial. As you know, I don't think I think it's an open secret now. The cutoff point for comments is twenty three comments. Once it gets to twenty three comments, it's like ah, job done, move on. So um, for some, for some <laughs> reason, that's the that's the magic number. Twenty three comments is uh, if an article gets less than twenty three comments, then something is wrong, and I have to go in there and massage things extensively. But um, <laughs> yeah, so, but right, because Sicilians are important, published just before SVPCA, 89 comments. 89 comments, and most of that happened while I was away. So yeah, I think the advantage that Tetsu has got in terms of half-life of its um, 
of the posts is that a lot of them are good reference material for just sort of general knowledge. They're good articles on the thing you're talking about, whereas most blog posts, uh, they tend to be making an argument or they're reporting on something. Um, even like other good blogs, they don't have that same sort of timeless format that a lot of the Tetsu posts have. Yeah. I mean, I found myself the other day going back to looking up Tetsu posts just for the information in them. I do that quite a bit. Um, whereas I can't think of another blog where I think, oh, the information is there. I think it was, mm. it was in a more permanent sort of format. Mm. Yes. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so, can we? Can, can I just briefly read out? Uh, so, uh, hello to anyone who's was is following the uh, is following on Facebook and Twitter while while we're we're recording. And the comments that have come in on Facebook so far include from David Pruss, Will you be mentioning the Potu profile pictures? Do you, are you familiar with this? No, I'm not. So, but I'm going to look it up. Uh, okay. So, so Andrea Chow of the brilliant Therapoda blog. For, I don't know what his motive was, but he decided to start um, using a. Potu, Potu is a you know a weird oh, people not yeah. yeah, yeah, South American yeah, night jar, I bet. Yes. Yeah, and he and he said, hey everyone, start using this Potu as your profile <laughs> picture on Facebook, and uh, like hundreds of people have. I don't know for whatever reason. I, I did for a while until I went for a quirkier picture that I found more appealing. Um, <laughs> and so, so yes, yeah, so so yes, David Press, we have mentioned the Potu profile picture. It's also it's I, I referenced it on Tetsu as well. Gareth Monger. Who better known as what is a gaffer Mongo? Will Tetsu be organising a fundraiser to buy Nyctosaurus KJ2 currently languishing on eBay? Now this is so. This is one of the two famous specimens described by Chris Bennett some years ago, yes. which are yeah these two specimens with giant basically antlers, um, and which the various different interpretations of, of those specimens of the early idea that it was you know like a wind sail. Um, and Ooh, buy it now, fifty one thousand uh, pounds. Well, well, that's not what I was going to say. <laughs> I think that I think that um, oh, raising story. Sorry. Well, well, no, no, that's that's good. That's because that's that's obviously you know an enthusiastic viewpoint that some people have. I, I've I've heard a very similar thing um, uh, mentioned in connection with these the famous dueling dinosaurs, this alleged Nanotyrannus and this alleged Newcastlesaurian ceratopsian may or may not be Triceratops, whatever. You know these two specimens that are preserved locked in combat and. Um, the so, so basically, without talking about specific cases such as the dueling dinosaurs or Nyctosaurus, I think that raising a huge sum of uh, well private or public money to purchase things that are advertised commercially or semi-commercially is kind of I don't know. I sh this is another one that's not something else that I shouldn't talk about too much because I don't know enough about it really. But um, it seems a bit of a slippery slope. We are basically saying that it's okay for people to um, acquire incredible fossils and then kind of hold the world to ransom. It's like, you know, you're not getting these until you drum up. And it's going to be some insane, insane amount. What did you say for the Nyctosaurus? Uh, it's 51,186,000. 51, well... Is that all? Let's get to no, fifty-one thousand one hundred eighty-six. Um, but Darren, Darren, it's free postage and packing on that. <laughs> for some of these specimens that come up for sale, you're talking about millions of dollars, and I don't know. I mean, Indiana Jones is something, but it belongs in a museum, and I, I just. 
Oh, I'm very, very, very wary about how to tell. To... I was. I agree, asked... but I, I don't really. I mean, we haven't really solved this, have we? So I think there's got to. I think there needs to be a because this problem has existed for well since fossil collecting began. Yeah. And the situation is not satisfactory. Yeah. And I think that, that that's because people are too. Uh, you talk to people about this, and this is why I think you're a bit scared to talk about it is that people have become very entrenched in their views and are often quite hostile to anyone saying anything different. Yeah, yeah. And I think that we need to do something else. There's got to be a different thing. I've said this a few times, but I think that that private ownership is okay, but maybe you need to have a license, and that license includes making it available to researchers. Um, It's okay to own it. Maybe you need to, like, store it in certain conditions, you know, sort of a bit like <clears throat> gun licensing, right? Mm. There are a bunch of conditions to how you, what you have to do to be allowed to own this thing. You know, keep it in locked cabinets and all that. I'm not saying this is exactly what it would be for fossils, but there are a bunch of conditions um, that you have to satisfy to own fossils, especially maybe significant ones, like this, um, like Dysaurus. Nyctosaurus, yeah. Nyctosaurus, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I mean, which, which would include making it available to researchers and it can get a specimen number and essentially you have to be your own little museum. If you well, yeah, that's, like yeah, I, yeah. We, we could talk about this for a long time and I don't want to, but, but the, the problem is that if, if, if fossils are used as kind of data points in science and science meant to be, is meant to be, um, you know, you're meant to be able to go and like look at, look at, pieces of key pieces of data then sometimes the the issue is there's a big gray area when it comes to the private ownership of fossils so yeah i i take i take what you said if these things are going to be like available scientifically then they there must be some sort of guaranteed access to them but in practice that actually doesn't happen so with these nictosaurs you know some people argue that bennett shouldn't have published them on the first place because when he was working on them they were they were privately owned they weren't in a in an accessible institution on the yeah. other hand the counter argument to that uh, is that well are you saying are you saying that he shouldn't have published on them at all he should have ignored the fact that they existed and some people are of that opinion so what you said early on a, a moment ago is absolutely true the fact that there are some people some inst- some some like entire communities of people who are kind of have a hardline opinion on this, and they kind of have to because they don't want to get in this grey area. So, for example, the the uh, Society of Vertebrate Paleontology just flat out refuses to kind of you know, credit um, private collectors. They will not work with people who like deal with first, with fossils as as commercial objects. And I know some members of that society, some prominent paleontologists, who argue that you know it doesn't matter how significant. A specimen is so, so long as it's privately owned or is you know in the commercial world then ignore it it cannot be regarded as part of us as part of the science yes. and um, i will uh, but i have an argument <clears throat> here which is in favor of private collecting um in that if you make it worth people's time and money they'll do it more we'll find more stuff it's not like yeah, we've got yeah. a, a huge number of funded expeditions to find fossils i mean as you know that that's sort of a joke we'll find a tiny proportion of them if we rely entirely on um publicly funded institutional collecting um or volunteer collecting which also happens of course but um 
the commercial, the economic argument would be, no, let them, let people collect them and sell them. Then they'll do it more. But the problem mm. is that that's, that's useless to science as it currently, yeah. or yeah. close to useless to science as it currently stands. So I think that goes to my argument that we need some sort of hybrid there. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I'd agree with that as well. I mean, people always have have found stuff due to their interests in things. Um, do, do, like, it's, it's another one of those things where there's the different arguments are actually somewhat similarly compelling, and I can kind of understand the sort of hardline SVP style approach, which says, you know, commercial collecting is bad. But I can also understand the fact that, you know, if people weren't interested in this as a source of revenue, and if they weren't making money off fossils, then they wouldn't go and collect them. And there's so many really important fossils that have been collected because people were basically doing it as a as a source of revenue. And, and yeah, we're, we're funded by commercial interests. So, so well, yeah, um, I guess we say that the SVP as it currently stands are right, you know, that private collecting is at the moment just a loss to science but um that's not that doesn't yeah. necessarily so, have to sometimes be the case. isn't it? yeah not always yeah. Yeah, exactly it's not always it's a loss to science and be. yeah and there are there are specimens that started out in the commercial world and did eventually get back into uh scientific um um yeah into the hands of scientists for example some of the stuff at the uh no, I don't want to mention specific cases because that would just make a mess. But, but so in, in short, um, yeah, something, something like raising money to buy Nyctosaurus, uh, the, the, the antler Nyctosaurus. Yeah, no, we won't be doing it. <laughs> but but, uh, but it's uh, an interesting and messy subject. And, well, John's just said some in, in, interesting stuff. I've rambled a bit. Um, um, other but but how much, how many? Okay, so we've got, we've got about 1,200 listeners. Let's round that down to 1,000. How no, much no, do no, they no, have to me, give each? Let me stop you there. They have to give because, 50 pounds each. 50 pounds let, each. Let me stop you right there. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because, now this is a controversial point of view, but I'm going to come out with it. I believe, oh dear, this is, this is going to make some people angry. I believe that if people are going to raise a lot of money for something, then for Christ's sake, do not spend it on fossils. <laughs> there's, so <laughs> many, there's so many more deserving things than than spending money on fossils. I mean, that's a, a, I, I know some people are going to dislike me for saying that, but it's true. If you're going to if you're going to raise money, it kind of makes me angry when people spend millions and millions of dollars or pounds, or whatever, on something like paleontology because there are so many other things that really deserve our money much more than it. And as someone who's kind of more interested in you know living animals and conservation than in furthering the careers of paleontologists, um, I'm sorry, but I just think, if, please, if you're going to raise a lot of money, then spend it on tigers or river dolphins or something. Or, or I don't or know. Or our I'm book. Not... Or yes, it's available. <laughs> because that is entirely done for the purposes of the, the good of uh, life on planet Earth. And, um, and let's not even go down the whole the humanitarian side of things as well. Okay, no, yeah, yeah, yeah I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really agree with that. Can we move, let's, 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 move say, let's say that oh, there are currently, probably, there are more fossils available sitting in institutions and all over the place than paleontologists can reasonably study. Ooh, see, I don't know about that one. I don't know about that. Because again... Again, do you want me to make a lot of enemies while doing this particular episode of the podcast? But there are too many paleontologists. There really are. We need to thin out their ranks a little bit. <laughs> so <laughs> there are so many people working on... Yeah, look, I just, I'll just stop. Sorry. Yeah, Sorry. but they're all working on theropods, Darren. They're not. They're actually not. How many presentations did you just see at SVPCA on theropods? 
I don't know. I was asleep. How am I meant were, to know? There were like there were like two or three, and they were on birds. So um, and there, well, there was one on that sort of alluded to work on Jurassic theropods, but um, that's true. That, theropods were very thin on the ground. This, this is this has been the case for a while now. It's like some people have made the point, and I think it's true that we've kind of gotten over the dinosaurs got a lot of you know sexy work done on vertebrate paleontology, but now people have people are going. Hold on, what about all those? Other things that need to be studied, you know, temnospondyls, lizards, crocodiliforms, etc. So, um, um, can I j- just go through the other Facebook comments? Got some hilarious yep. ones. Th- thank you to everyone. Padraig, unpronounceable, many many syllables, said, "Who would win in a fight between Sarkozukas and President Bashir Hafid Al Assad?" I'm going to go for Sarkozukas on that one. David Pruss again says we could do a rant on the Megalodon documentary. Well, we could, but then if we will, um, Padraig also says you could. Uh, uh, he said something else. Yeah, he says lots of things. Richard Forrest, <laughs> Richard Forrest, um, organizer of the brilliant SVPCA meeting that we've now mentioned several times, but haven't yet explained what it is. Will you be mentioning John? Pl- Pl- <laughs> Will you be mentioning John Plague Dog Conway's effect on the SVPCA <laughs> meeting? Alex Klein says, what's a dysorophid? Well, Alex, a dysorophid is a dysorophoid. Padraig also says, what is ugly, what is fat? Oh, my God, there's a lot of comments coming in. Mark Carter, another lost Australian desert species turns up on camera. This is the the recent discovery of one of the rock rats, which is very interesting and worthy discovery that we may or may not discuss. And Memo Kozman, how is holding a... Have you seen the picture? I can't see what's going on here. Memo. I, I mean, I've got it up, but I, it's, not, it's not there. But hang on. Well, well, hold on there, John. Don't get too excited. Yeah. Um, Memo is holding a hard copy of All Your Yesterdays. Hmm. Just be sure to mention this nice book. I just received the proof print today. It looks very spectacular, he says. Um, so All Your Yesterdays, let's just mention it. You're all yeah. familiar with All Yesterdays. There's a sequel. It's called All Your Yesterdays, and uh, I think we should discuss it another time because we don't have time today. All Your Yesterdays. And when it's out properly, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we'll continue to comment on things as and when they appear. <clears throat> okay, uh, so the SVPCA meeting. I have to tell my story of arrival because that was, that was Tell people funny. what SVPCA is first of all because many people won't know. SVPCA is the Symposium of Vertebrate Paleontology and Comparative Anatomy. It's basically the biggest um, vertebrate paleontology conference in Europe, isn't it? Mm, it is. Yeah. Happens every year. It's generally yeah. a lot of fun. It's a single stream meeting, so everyone's in the same uh, same presentations, although it's getting to be about as big as it possibly could and remain single stream, isn't it? I think mm. there are 160 people this year, which was quite a lot. It's always a lot yeah. of fun. I think it was the biggest one yet, I think. Yeah. Yes. So the reason we haven't done the podcast for ooh, over a month is that I went to Africa. Um, just before I went to Africa, I went to a wedding in Denmark. And a, a couple of days at home, when we tried to get together to record the podcast, but it wasn't really possible. Then I went, when I got on the plane, went to Africa, where we took four kids, nieces and nephews, see the animals it was a lot of fun <clears throat> um saw a lot of a lot of cool stuff no no really exotic animals but you know seeing elephants really close up wow and that sort of stuff is pretty good 
Yeah, we we drove into there's there's a nature park there, and we're on a like a in a jeep. And we drove into a herd of uh, uh, juvenile elephants. So they're all about I don't know, uh, sort of six seven juvenile foot tall. Yeah, yeah, six seven foot tall at the um at the shoulder. And they came right up to the jeep, and they're putting their trunk in and everything to touch wow. people. <laughs> it was it was kind of terrifying in a way, but. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. Uh, lots and lots of um, antelope, obviously, warthogs, that sort of stuff. It was really good, really close up to them all. Like, uh, get, get close enough to touch the antelope. So, Do you take photos part. when you're out there? Did. I might put some on my blog. Oh, cool. Um, but I picked up something on the plane on the way out, which was some sort of cold. So I was kind of sick for the whole trip. And then I got a, the cold turned into a sinus infection towards the end. And my plan was to get off the plane back from Johannesburg. We're in Swaziland, by the way. I didn't mention that. That's where we went. It's a great little country. <laughs> if you want to go to Africa and have a nice little safari experience, that's the place to go. Um... So my plan was to get off the plane from Johannesburg, which was actually a two-hop flight, two two hops of eight hours, and get on a plane straight away to go to, in Gatwick Airport, straight away to go to SVPCA, which was in Edinburgh this year. And I looked at my ticket when we were waiting in Dubai Airport <coughs> for my <laughs> trip to Edinburgh, and it said, leaves it. I forget when it was, but like 3.30 from Stansted Airport. I thought, that's not the airport I'm flying into. That's not good. And people who don't know London, Gatwick is quite a long way out south of London and Stansted is quite a long way out north of London. And I had allowed a three-hour gap, I think. And um, it looks like I would have arrived at Stansted Airport if I got both express trains about... 20 minutes before my flight was due to leave, so it wasn't possible. So I got to Gatwick and had to buy a new ticket to go to Edinburgh, which I did, but meant a six-hour wait in Gatwick Airport. Oh, my God. Gatwick Airport. I think this is probably true of any airport that you spend six hours in, but, jeez, did I run out of things to look at. God, it was boring. It wasn't even a Lego shop like there was in Denmark. Which <laughs> would get me entertained. Stupid Gatwick. So I hadn't, and of course we'd been in Africa, so I hadn't really washed my clothes for about two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I was sick with a sinus infection. I was damn tired anyway because of, you know, four kids. Um, crowd control for two weeks. Um, and a two... Two eight-hour flights with a four-hour four, four hour gap in Dubai. So I get on the plane and I get to Edinburgh and I think I'm going to get a taxi because I just can't I can't be dealing with this anymore. I'm going to get a taxi and go straight to the thing. Unfortunately, I was arriving um, actually at the icebreaker, wasn't I? The the mm. opening drinks. Yeah. And so I say to the taxi driver, "Okay, I don't I don't I don't have any cash. Take me to a cash machine and we'll." Go straight onto the, straight onto the um, opening drinks of the SVPCA, 
And I'll get to the ATM and uh, I've got no card. <laughs> so it turns out I'd lost my card somewhere on the plane or in the airport after I landed. So I give old money bags Darren a ring. <laughs> so, Darren, Darren, I don't have any money. <laughs> I need money for a taxi. Meet me out front. <laughs> and Darren's like, oh, fine. How much do you need? You like, you know, 500, 600 quid? Yeah, that's me. Yeah. Oh, God. And he very nicely met me out front with the 21 pounds that I needed. Um, mm. And I <laughs> so I arrive at the opening drinks. And oh, God, with my stupid Africa hat, unwashed clothes. <laughs> I've got a cough and <laughs> a sinus infection. And I quickly grab a glass of wine because that's what you really need. Mm -hmm. And I drank it look at, while looking for my card and then cancelling my card. And then they stopped serving. Oh, dear. They stopped oh, they serving. Like, they stopped serving. <laughs> it's because you'd arrived. That's because I'd arrived. They knew, they knew that it was all over. <clears throat> And then stupidly, we went out to a pub. As you do. As you do. And I stayed up until, well, probably one in the morning, as we do. Um, as we continue to do for the entire uh, SVPCA. I was going to say one. <laughs> That's not my yeah. recollection. <laughs> Generally, well, yeah, like so three then it or was four. about three or four <laughs> after that. <laughs> oh, and then I arrived home and I slept for almost two days. <laughs> and what you haven't mentioned is that you i don't know maybe it wasn't you but there was a lot of oh right yeah the whole point of this story right yeah and then after yeah. we got back everyone says i'm got really sick after svpca yes so yeah there was there's the svpca bug that's been going on yes which is why this conference is now affectionately known as plague con <laughs> although i shared a room with john and i didn't get ill so yes but you know, didn't maybe, come to my kissing booth darren i did not come to your kissing booth maybe i built up an immunity through uh, <laughs> breathing in the same air as you i don't know but uh, okay so yeah S, should we talk about svpca anymore i mean that's not really about the meeting was it that wasn't really about the meeting no we can talk about the actual meeting so symposium. Although how much are we allowed to say? That's the problem, isn't it? Well, you're allowed. To, you're allowed to say so and so spoke about this and so and so spoke about that. You're just not allowed to discuss detailed, you know, unpublished stuff. But um, there were a lot of good talks this year. I thought it was a very strong meeting, but there weren't really many things that were sort of super sensitive. You know, don't talk about this because we've got to impress for nature that sort of thing. Um, yeah. I was on. I, I spoke and was also co-author co on a few things. And one of the things that, that um, my colleague Gareth Dyke spoke about was the work on the flight of micro, flight behavior of Microraptor, which we've now got in, I think, I think it's in press, you to be very soon, in um, Nature Communications. So that, that's the kind of thing that you're not supposed to talk about, but you're allowed to do what I just did. You're allowed to say that. Mm -hmm. um, I spoke about sexual selection and uh, dinosaurs and pterosaurs and whatnot. Um, yeah, I, th I thought it was, I thought it was a very very good, very strong meeting. Although I, unfortunately, I missed big chunks of it. I um I had to miss. Now there's a, a very famous um, Scottish uh, fossil collector called Stan Wood, who died, I believe, last year, and uh, found most of the kind of key uh, carboniferous like temnospondyls and 
um, like Chondrichthians and stuff that have been integral to what people have published on these things in the last decades, really. And there was a whole, uh, I think, pretty much the better part of a day at the end of the meeting devoted to his legacy, you know, the specimens that he'd found or, or worked on or contributed to. And I unfortunately had to miss a lot of that. I didn't want to because I do like me some Temner spondles. But um, I'd, I'd arranged with Dougal Dixon to do an interview, which um, Dougal and I did at, at that time. With That will be covered on Tetrapod Zoology. I figure that as one of the few people who actually seems to – I speak to an awful lot of people about Dougal Dixon and about Afterman and, and, and his other projects, but I seem to be one of the few people who actually knows him. So um, – when we were in Brazil for the the Rio Terrasol meeting, I asked him then if he was if he would if he was be ha- if he would be happy to do that, and um, he was. So we did. So I just got to write that up, and and I learned loads of stuff that I didn't know about about after man man after man. Haha, <laughs> how controversial! And um, the new dinosaurs. So I'm looking forward to writing that up. But what would you? What was your favourite stuff? Your best, the best thing of the conference. <clears throat> Well, you don't have to say you don't have to say my talk because that's obvious. Yeah, that's well, a given. yeah, obviously that's a given. Um, yeah, you can't. Um, you get biased towards the taxi you like, don't you? So, well, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other stuff yeah. is generally pretty boring. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the pterosaur stuff and the the bird flight stuff was my was my favourite session probably. Along also, and I have to say this, um, Mike Taylor and Matt Waddell. Why do you have to say it? You don't have to say it. Well, say I, it no, I, I have to say it because they you deserve... Mean honorary, honorary mention, because if yeah. you say, I have to say it, that means, well, I do, of course, have to mention my friends, blah, well, blah. No, yeah, <laughs> no, it's not because they generally give the best talks of the SVPCA, I think. Uh, uh-huh. um, this is uh, Mike Taylor and Matt Waddell of SVPAL, which is yeah. just svpal.com, isn't it? Yes. Yes. They generally are back-to-back and give two absolutely cracking talks on sauropod necks or some closely related thing. Mm. And they were great, as usual. Unfortunately, they were on at 8.30 in the morning, which was... Yeah. Yeah. Really criminal. (laughs) Mm. Mm. Um, Mark's talk on on the surprising diversity of Ash Darkards was... Was very good. Yeah, it's good. Um, I did enjoy Gareth Dyke's talk also. How much are these things? How much we're not really allowed to talk too much about these things, which is unfortunately doesn't make them for great podcasting. Well, we should stop there then. Yes, um, I think yeah. I can mention discussions we've had. Um, <clears throat> yes, with people. Yeah, and so Matt Waddell's talk was uh, about sauropod growth, and some of this has been on the internet. Um, so I don't think we're letting too much out of the bag here, but that uh, some specimens of well-known sauropods like Apatosaurus are much, much larger than the famous mounted specimens. They're up there with the largest um, sauropods known, and they are not necessarily mature. Mm. And so I had an interesting discussion with Matt Waddell about um, sauropod growths and growth and populations, and that it's it seems that they cut both ways. So not only are the larger specimens much larger than the famous specimens that we've all become familiar with, um, but the it is probably the case that the majority of sauropods, actual living sauropods, if you went back and actually counted up 
taxa Lycopatosaurus and counted up the individuals, the average size would be much smaller than those big mounted skeletons because of the huge fecundity they have, you know, um, hundreds of hundreds of eggs a year, possibly, um, and lots and lots of small juveniles and sub-adults. Sub mm-hmm. So I, the, I think there's something really interesting going on in the ecology of sauropods, but perhaps dinosaurs in general, in terms of juveniles taking up a huge amount of um, the ecological, biomass. yeah, the biomass and the ecological space, <clears throat> and that the, you know, we're very used to mammals, which tend to grow to adult size and then sort of stick there, and that's sort of their normal size. Whereas with sauropods, it looks like they kept growing for a long time, right? And that yeah. there would be a huge diversity in size in um, <clears throat> amongst we, sauropods, yeah. much more so than mammals. Yeah, we should say it does. This is this does not mean that they didn't exhibit determinate growth. It does seem that dinosaurs, as a generalization, not necessarily all of them, but as a generalization, they probably do reach a maximum body size and stop growing. This 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 idea of reptiles growing continuously throughout the whole of their lives is sort of a fairly popular myth that's proving to be less and less true the more uh, animals we get data on. Well, I haven't read any of the literature on this, so I should be I should be careful with this. What I say, but I th I thought that with sauropods there wasn't a clear determinate growth pattern that they had an inflection point in that their growth slowed, but mm. that there was mm -hmm. no definite halt on growth. I'm not absolutely sure what the thinking is specifically on sauropods at the moment, and I know that for some relatives of sauropods, in particular the Triassic sauropodomorph Platyosaurus, um, there is evidence for uh, kind of like a conventional reptilian style of indeterminate growth. But the my, my point really was that the, the general idea that reptiles as a whole just carry on growing for as long as they're alive is turning out not to be true. Determinate growth is, is it, the determinate growth is like the norm for certainly lizards, and it's been demonstrating crocs and quite a few turtles now. And it has been demonstrated for, um, I think, for pretty much most dinosaurs that have been histologically examined, but I can't remember what the case is on sauropods. I know that when we did the walking with dinosaurs work, me and Dave Martell years ago, we did talk about indeterminate growth in there, but yeah, I'd need to go and I'd need to go. Well, and it check, would fit but... with this pattern of occasionally <clears throat> finding, you know, really absolutely enormous specimens of... Mm. Uh, yeah, but it's a sampling thing as well, because how many specimens, how many members of a population do we, do we ever have? And, and maybe the point with sauropods, in keeping with what you just said about most of the most members of a species being juveniles and subadults, is how many like big old adults do we actually have? And it turns out that the number is for, if we've got like... It, hypothetically, suppose we've got 100 specimens of a given taxon, like a patasaurus, of those old adults might be one, because those individuals really were very rare in the population. The yeah. chances of them being preserved is really small, whereas the, the juveniles and sub-adults, they're the ones that we are seeing being represented in the fossil record. What's the definition so, of sub-adult? Not quite adult. <laughs> <laughs> not, because not if you're looking at an indeterminate growth pattern, what is a sub-adult? I don't... I don't... I can't think yeah. of a definition because clearly a lot of these... Um... Yeah, but an adult's sexually mature, right? So you don't have to be skeletally mature to be sexually mature. But my and, understanding and... was that a lot of these um, uh, specimens are thought to be sexually mature. Yeah, they're sexually mature. So yeah. Oh, no, no, no. So if I'm sorry, if I'm talking about sub-adults, I mean animals that are not sexually mature. So they're yeah, not yeah, adults exactly. in, the, in the reproductive sense. But you can still be an adult and not be... You can still be an adult in the sexual sense and not be an adult in the... 
osteological sense in the sense of like having fused up bones and such agreed but what i, I guess what i'm saying is that the uh the larger specimens of apatosaurus are say three times the weight of yeah. um specimens which are thought to be sexually mature well and sure big, yeah but, big animals yeah. you know yeah. 20 ton uh, 20 <clears throat> ton animals of uh that we're all familiar with the the mounted specimens and, and the famous yeah. specimens um which are thought to be adults they're yeah. just far smaller than what are thought well, yeah, to be the largest yeah. adults. I think it's it's incredible. I think that we now know of specimens like a, of, of taxa like a Patasaurus, where the biggest adults are gargantuan. So to make this clear, Matt Waddell actually said that there are specimens of a Patasaurus that are the same size as say Argentinosaurus. Right? That's actually what he was saying. Yeah. But the the degree of difference that we're seeing there, the degree of variation in the size of sexually mature individuals. I'm not sure that's unprecedented in terms of what we know about living animals because we know of populations of, for example, elephants where there are sexually mature animals that like white. For African um, savannah elephants, the big, the biggest of the three extant elephants, there are individuals that are sexually mature at around about a ton, but the world record holder is like, it's something stupid like 10 tons, I think. I think yeah. that's right. Yeah, I think so that is right. Yeah. So I'm not, so in terms of, is that is that such a difference? It just means that you've got rare outliers that are exceptionally big and have been mm -hmm. growing for a long time. But you can also have an animals that during times of maybe during times of the right kind of selection or whatever, they have they have um, been reproducing at much smaller body size. And of course, we know from histological work on dinosaurs from the discovery of medullary bone inside dinosaurs, this special kind of bone that females lay down uh, to um, for use in the generation of eggshells, we know that there are specimens that are reproductively capable um, at kind of teenage size, but they're well off from being skeletally mature. So there's various different variables here. You know, the di what, what we know about dinosaur biology is obviously turning out to be increasingly interesting and complex and uh, in some ways more like that of extant endothermic animals and in other ways still, is still making mesozoic dinosaurs kind of unusual and special mm. um but um yeah it would yeah, it was, be surprising was... if sauropods had a biology that was <clears throat> tremendously similar to any mm. living animal wouldn't it because yeah, it was well, so I, unusual yeah well I, I always think for groups like sauropods on the one hand many aspects of their biology behavior and ecology are not that different from big mammals and birds but on the other hand yeah other things are absolutely alien and people tend to focus on the alien stuff they tend to think that you know you have to make a whole special set of rules for explaining the physiology and ecology of sauropods um, and I think that's led some people down peculiar pathways on the other hand if you concentrate more on the similarities that we know about their growth style and their soft tissue anatomy the stuff that makes them very similar to to birds Especially that to crocodilians and big mammals as well. You know, in other ways, they're not they're not that they're not that weird. Always. Mm. Um, I, th I want a, an honorary mention for Mike Habib's talk as well. I thought Habib's talk was was excellent on uh, feather asymmetry and an another talk that's kind of um, focusing on the fact that some of the stuff that we kind of think we all know is actually the stuff that's in the books is often misleading or inaccurate. So it's, there's this kind yes. of well-known, in quotes, rule that you need asymmetrical feathers to fly and that as soon as you find an asymmetric feather, then it's by definition a flight feather. But that it turns out to be, again, I don't want to discuss it in detail, but it turns out to be far more complex. And some of the stuff that's said by people like you know, Fiducia in his book and, and other workers that have followed that is actually not, um, not actually accurate. There's, there's different kinds of asymmetry and a really subtle kind of asymmetry 
in terms of the form of the feathers is not as important as some other things that affect the yeah, form. Yeah, I think of the we can give the general thrust in that a small amount of asymmetry is not aerodynamically useful. So a little bit of asymmetry is is not functionally, in terms of aerodynamics, interesting. So uh, people putting too much weight on a small amount of asymmetry, well, it's not that small, uh, you know, it can look quite asymmetrical, but functionally speaking, that feather is, aerodynamically speaking, that feather is not aerodynamically asymmetrical. It will behave pretty much like a symmetrical feather, and therefore using this as a marker for flight or whatever is... It's all much, yeah. It's very messy um, topic in some ways, but um, yes. In so, but uh, actually, to which was actually really good about Michael Beeb's talk, it made it all quite understandable, didn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. He's he's, he's a brilliant, he's a brilliant speaker. Yeah. Uh, there, there's there was loads of other SVPCS stuff we could talk about, marine reptiles yeah. and crocodile forms. So and... apart from those ones, what, what were your favourites? Um, Marcello Sanchez-Viagra stuff on the diversity of metatherians as opposed to eutherians. I find that quite interesting because there's this, so there's this general idea, it's been around for a long time, uh, going back to like the 1930s and maybe before, that marsupials, so marsupials belong to a large group of mammals called metatherians. And we're all familiar with cases whereby some metatherians are evolutionary evolutionarily convergent on placental mammals, eutherians. For example, saber-toothed metatherian, Thalicosmilus, convergent on saber-toothed cats, marsupial moles, convergent on placental moles, blah, 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 blah. But why is it that there aren't such things as metatherian bats, or why aren't there metatherian seals or uh, cetacean uh, mimics? The idea that's been popular, and should we say that we talk about this in the Cryptozoologicon? This is actually, I don't know if you've read the sections in the relevant sections. Oh, wow, okay. So it's touched on there, isn't it? Mm -hmm. the, um, there's this idea that because um, metatherians and marsupials, because they're, they've got this style of reproductive biology where a little tiny, tiny baby the size of a baked bean or jelly baby, whatever, jelly bean, comes out of the vulva and it's got to like climb its way up into the pouch. And it actually grabs hold of its mother's fur and literally climbs up to the pouch. This means that the tiny little jelly bean baby has got to have overdeveloped grasping hands. Now, if you start out your development as... As you know, a baby marsupial is basically an embryo. It's not kind of anywhere near as full developed as a, as a placental baby is at birth. Um, if you start out your life like that with these big prehensile hands, then the idea is that maybe that limits your developmental trajectory. So you can't evolve a wing or you can't evolve a paddle-like limb. That's what people have said. They've suggested that that is actually a major constraint on the morphological you know um, on the evolutionary possibilities available to metatherians mm. and um his talk was kind of was was el elaborating on that because it turns out it, it, as always it turns out that things a lot of things are far more um um complicated than that and there's actually lots of things that metatherians and marsupials do in development that's kind of I don't want to say better than or superior to placentals, but it's not true that the metatherian style is like inferior to that of placentals. Um, and it was it was basically along, along those lines. It's something that's... Uh, um, there, there was, I like the new Thylaka Smiler he mentioned as well, which is, should be published fairly soon. It might even be... Uh, oh, it's, yeah, no, it's, it's being worked on at the moment. A new, Going a new... back to that constraint on um, <clears throat> being an explanation for not evolving... Uh, aquatic or flying forms yeah 
it's 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 odd that we'd need an explanation for that because <laughs> there's lots of animals or very large clades that haven't evolved aquatic or uh, yeah or flying forms. I mean, you look at uh, dinosaurs for an awfully long time, you know, until birds. Uh, there's there's um. There are no aquatic dinosaurs. There are no flying yeah. dinosaurs. Well, yeah, yeah, but but same thing. People tend to come up with with proposed explanations as to why that might be. So for non-bird dinosaurs, there are published claims that dinosaurs, in quotes, couldn't evolve aquatic habits because because of this or because of that. Uh, I can't think of any anatomical reasons, but the one that, that you will find in the literature is they said, ah, the seas were already full of stuff. So the fact yes. that Sauropterygians and ichthyosaurs were taking up all of the aquatic niches. Did you know that Americans say niche? Yes. Yeah. Niches. <laughs> anyway, niches. Thank you very much. <laughs> stupid <laughs> uh, Americans. Stupid Americans. <laughs> stupid Americans. That's, um, that's why you don't have aquatic uh, uh, stegosaurs and whatnot. Or did you? <laughs> <laughs> That would be cool. But, yeah, I, as I say, I'm not really all that sure these things need uh, yeah. explanation I, in that I way. I don't disagree with you, but the fact is that people have always done this, and yeah. they always will, and you're never going to stop them. So, yeah, and the idea of some sort of, like, uh, there's always right ways around these things. Well, well, I mean, yeah, as but, dinosaurs proved, right? <laughs> but, well, yeah, because obviously there are loads of aquatic dinosaurs these days, but constraint is an important theme in evolution because... You know, you, organisms are not just infinitely moldable pieces of plasticine, are they? There are limits on what you can do. And there are lots of historical reasons as to why organisms might not be able to evolve in the, you know, the ideal trajectory. And it's turning out the more we learn about so-called evo-devo, the developmental pathways of organisms and how they're shaped by their genetic history, blah, blah, blah. It's turning out that there's lots of things that just can't happen because the things are locked into a certain developmental pathway or... They can't. They can't lose bits. They can't add bits that that would sort of make sense. And I agree with that. But I think that also what we lose sight of is that there's more than one way to swim. There's more than one way to fly. So if you can't solve it in one way, you can solve it in another way. So I find that these sort of constraints on morphology or development don't translate particularly well into constraints on possible ecologies. It's just yeah. not that oh, tight. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. you know, you look at the different ways. Um, vertebrates have evolved to swim or fly you think that well you know just about anything could find a way to do it whether think, it's um yeah i think we've both done more than our fair share of promoting the idea that well, as i call it anatomy well it's not my phrase i've stolen it from someone else but anatomy is not destiny the fact that animals are not necessarily constrained to doing stuff because of a given anatomical configuration animals do crazy and unexpected stuff yes and and also and you can evolve an unexpected bit of your anatomy to do an unexpected thing, which is sort of what lots yeah. of animals have done, right? Yeah. They yeah. haven't used the most obvious way to get somewhere. That's right. Um, yeah. Yes. I wanted to talk about the ichthyosaurs. Well, not, I just want to say a huge amount of representation. Ichthyosaurs representing as well. Um, did you see me walking around with Rebecca Groom's Pemnodontosaurus plushie toy? You've seen that, yeah? I have. It's great. That's awesome. Yeah. And got we got a website. Have... We, should, we should give it a shout out. Oh, I don't know. I actually don't know. I'm always telling. I think she's just kind of doing this for fun. And she does cosplay and makes. Um, make... did, you show... did you see the raven, the crow she's done? Just brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I'm just searching for Rebecca Groom. I'm getting lots of hits that are not her. 
but um i'll I'll let her know and and we can come back to this because i do i do think she needs more uh i don't know credit is that the right term but well she should sell them because i think there is a market for um accurate soft toys so as well as extinct animals that's cool Absolutely. So as well as walking around with the toy ichthyosaur, there, we also had a talk on a new mix of storage from Svalbard. And those of you who know ichthyosaurs, there were some amazing slides about a, a new toratognomid specimen, which just blew me away. And um, Aubrey, um, 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 Roberts and uh, Jessica Lawrence-Wujic on new path of pelvians. That was, all, that was all cool stuff. So there was a nice little ichthyosaur thing. At the meeting, I picked up specimen i've been working on for for a time is i've i've lent it to a colleague of mine judy sassoon she she gave it back to me and so i'm carrying this like big chunk of rock weighs about i don't know five kilos back through customs and uh, i got stopped and <laughs> they they went through all my stuff and um brought out this huge chunk of rock and uh, w- when you go through the um airport and they do this stuff when they stop you I always think you probably should. There's no point in telling them. You just got to let them do it. Just stand there silently and just as they go through all your stuff. And um, so, you know, he gets out this fossil and he's like, what the hell? And I'm like, yeah, don't touch the bones. Said it's an ichthyosaur from Spitsbergen. And that had to be taken away. And, uh, and the guy, this, another guy, some official came back to me and said, oh, yeah, we are going to let it through. And so that's how kind of you. Thank you very much. And uh, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say it like that because obviously you have to be nice to be in trouble. But um, yeah, that was that was interesting. I remember um, getting searched on the way back from. Um, <clears throat> I was working on a pterosaur project in uh, California, and it was just a random search. It wasn't it wasn't customs. Mm. And I said, I said, why did you go to why 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 were you in America? And I said. I was at, you know, I've been working on this pterosaur project thing. And he says, what are pterosaurs? And I say, flying reptiles from the Mesozoic. And he's, he's looking at me like, this is the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. This guy yeah. is carrying drugs. So he's going through my bag. And, you know, the first thing he comes across is Encyclopedia of Pterosaurs. <laughs> and then he's, uh, all right, okay. So this story is getting more plausible. And he's, he's going through my bag. And this is just full of pterosaur stuff. And he says, "Okay, can you hand me your coat?" I was still wearing my—I was wearing my coat for some reason. I hand it over, and he—and he's feeling along in the, in the, uh, you know, the bottom in the lining, yes. and he finds something. And I think, "Oh God, what's that?" Because this coat had a hole in the pocket. Yeah. And um, so he reaches in and he pulls it out, and I'm thinking, "Oh God." <laughs> Not that I had anything. You just—you just get really nervous, mm. don't you? Mm, mm. And um. <laughs> it was a model of a pterosaur <laughs> paper model that I made <laughs> and I thought, All right, now I'm checker. starting to look suspicious because my story is too well documented too good yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you, yeah. Mm, that's good um, we have another, another Facebook comment from Mike Hansen who would win in a fight three way fight between a Bigfoot a Ropen and a Peters saw would the outcome be any different if they were on fire? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Well, that's a big fight, obviously. Um, Sh- we've got a bunch of uh, uh, Twitter. Yeah, I haven't been following Thanks. Twitter. So, the black mud puppy. Yes, Ethan. What is the evolutionary advantage of parthenogenesis in reptiles? Is it an island hopping mechanism? Ooh, whoa. 
parthenogenesis. So parthenogenesis is basically virgin birth. The fact that there is a whole bunch of species that have evolved in insects, fish, salamanders, lizards, snakes, sharks, where due to extremely subtle and complex genetic hocus pocus females are allowed, are allowed to skip over the explanation they're able to produce babies without mating and it basically means they produce clones of themselves now in the lizards it's the conventional explanation is it's just like a really neat evolutionary adaptation allowing them to fill up a habitat with loads of clones of themselves it seems to have arisen now again genetics i'm not going to start talking about genetics because it's too complicated for our readership to follow, right? <laughs> Genetics. Um, the, the, it seems to have occurred basically by accident as a, as a weird um, side effect of genetic combination that's, that seems to have occurred between two hybrid species. You have like two, two um, sexually reproducing hybrid species that produce a hybrid new population that we regard as a species. Remember, there's no hard and fast rule level what a species is a species is whatever we decide it is so this hybrid population you might say it's not really a species but people call them species they uh they've got like leftover bits of their uh um uh, 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 ge- genetic stuff and uh, and that allows them to uh perfect explanation they get really complicated stuff but and it's and they're kind of like they're always sort of weed species as in like they're sort of the ones that are at the fringes of habitats they're not thriving in optimum habitats they're at the sort of at the fringes of the places where other other animals don't want to live it seems and um and they're kind of they always seem to be boom and bust species they can like quickly fill out a habitat a fringe habitat with clones of themselves but obviously with virtually no genetic variation they're extremely prone to um you know rapidly dying off for the same single reason so they Mm. seem to be they seem to be i'm not an expert on this obviously but they seem to be like accidentally produced boom and bust weeds that thrive for short periods and uh and are then are then gone so it's thought that the parthenogenetic lizards um are all short-lived recent things recently evolved things that won't be around for much longer um, and, and there is one recent study which actually contradicted that because it showed that the, one of the um, parthenogenetic whiptail lizards from Mexico or thereabouts was actually quite long-lived, but I can't remember what the evidence for that was. So <clears throat> are there clades of parthenogenetic lizards? In other uh, words, no. So no. it is something that it crops up. Yeah, yeah. And... So there, you do get, there are clades where parthenogenesis is common, so within these whiptail tiered lizards there's like a bunch of species where it sort of is popped up like multiple different times also the case for some of the um eurasian lacerted lizards and it's been documented in several monitor lizards now including komodo dragons <clears throat> but um as to the precise ins and outs of it well we would need a we would need a specialist guest on for the the show to really explain it but i guess that would support the notion that they are more short-lived they tend to die out yeah yeah that's, there that's, are no, no long-running clades of, uh, that's yeah that's correct that's my understanding yeah yeah, yeah. so there that, is a follow-up question here which is has parthenogenesis ever been documented in mammals um and, uh, aside from catholics I'll, I'll have to point <laughs> out that that mary wasn't a catholic she was a jew really well she couldn't have been a catholic could she Oh, because Christ hadn't been born yet. Yeah. So. Oh, right. 
Yeah, virgin birth. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, uh, if not, why not? Well, you know, genetics. Booga, booga, booga. Exactly, and that's my explanation as well. The closest thing that things that come that's come to it is um, I don't I don't know why it's not present in mammals. Maybe there maybe there is a good reason. But delayed implantation, so basically where females in some animals are able to somehow I don't so far as I know it's not known how this works, but they can store sperm and keep it alive for well days or weeks would be incredible. But I think we're talking about like years to decades i'm pretty sure there's a case of one of the armadillos i think the nine-banded armadillo which is famous for producing um it always produces the same number of babies because they're all clones it's quite a quite a large number ah damn it why do i not carry around all this stuff in my head all the time <laughs> um and they can start the they can either store sperm or they can start the development of the embryo but then basically say to the embryos, stop developing, go to sleep, I'll wake you up in about 12 years. And um, so they can yeah, restart uh, the development of the embryos when it's a better time because, you know, the conditions aren't so harsh or they're in a different mood, I don't know. But um, I'm pretty sure there was a case where some, not, I think nine bad in armadillo mother, there was like 12 years between her being um, fertilized and her producing babies and if you imagine if you <clears throat> ordinarily that that's if, if i'm remembering correctly if 12 years is correct that's exceptional normally it's like a couple of years but can you imagine if you caught an animal from the world and kept it in captivity for like months or a year or so then you know how, how surprised what one day this this animal which so far as you know is a virgin or hasn't been with any males lately suddenly gives birth you think wow that could be have i, have I got myself a parthenogenetic Armadillo. And I think in the cases of the Komodo dragons that have apparently um, exhibited virgin birth in captivity, that was like the first thing they checked. It was like, let's do a genetic test on these babies. Are they definitely cloned to the mother or are they? have we just ignored the fact that she had some secret midnight liaison with the male in the next compound or something? And um, yeah, they, they managed to rule that out. So uh, yeah, fascinating stuff. Um, Funnily enough, I did. You know, I do a lot of documentaries on the. Well, I shouldn't say I do. I often get used as a talking head expert type person on yes. TV programs about the Loch Ness monster. I did like three last year, and in one of them, oh sorry, within the last two years, one of them, the the people basically making the documentary, they learn about parthenogenesis, and they were like, "Hold on, plesiosaurs are reptiles." So if there was a plesiosaur population in Loch Ness, then how do we know that we couldn't... Because one of the objections to the... One of the many objections to the Loch Ness Monster is how can you have a breeding population? Too small, not enough biomass, blah, blah, blah. So they're saying, well, maybe what if we had just one parthenogenetic female? Mm. And, uh, and so they asked me this, and I was like, oh, come on. And I, and I said what I've just said about the, the apparently short-lived boom-and-bust ecology of the, the lizards concerned because they were basing it all on lizards. They didn't include any of that in the TV program. They filmed the guy at London Zoo who is in charge of the Komodo dragons, and they asked him, I'm sure he's a, you know, a leading expert on the husbandry of Komodo dragons, but I don't know that he's necessarily that well-read on the biology of parthenogenetic lizards. And he sort of like shrugged his shoulders and said, oh, yeah, maybe. And that was the <laughs> bit that went in the documentary. It's so typical. So typical. He might have gone... Uh, well maybe no wait a second yeah <laughs> and they cut that bit out because that's how they roll um 
before SVPCA, I went to Weird Weekend. Weird Weekend is pretty much, I think, the only uh, 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 the only meeting in Europe that sort of uh, centers around cryptozoology. I mean, there is other stuff involved. There's a there's a lot of strange talks given on all manner of other things. My least favorite this year was the one on orbs. What a pile of crap, Jesus. But um, the, the cryptozoology stuff, um, there was, uh, and I, I don't know, I, I definitely shouldn't involve myself in this stuff. I should stop going to these meetings. I really should. It's not good for me. But I do, I enjoy it. It's like I, I, conferences, you, part of the reason for going is actually the social scene. And this is the only time when I get to, ha- you know, sort of hook up with friends who I've known for years. Um, it's in a, a bit weird little place in rural North Devon, which is quite fun, fun to get to, called Wolves, Wolvesery. But um, there was a talk by Lars Thomas, a well-known cryptozoological author and investigator on the natural history of trolls. And that was quite cool. And part of it was, it's often quite hard, difficult to work out exactly from talks on cryptids whether people are specifically saying that they endorse the thing, endorse the, the creatures as, you know, within a biological sense, whether they're sort of saying they really believe in them. Because he was talking about the natural history of trolls and saying that in the stories of them, there are kind of, there's the flavour of authenticity. There's sometimes people do seem to be ascribing, describing things that do sound like real features of a real unknown creature. And the troll stories, he was saying that a lot of them have... Um, in some ways, they sound like mystery hominids. There are things that are really similar to some of the stuff in the ancient troll stories are very similar to things that people report nowadays in like Bigfoot and Yeti accounts and stuff. And to the cryptozoological literalists, who of course there are quite a few at this meeting, to them, that's evidence that ah, trolls are actually based on encounters with uh, unknown hominids. That, that, that today people see in you know remote areas of, of Asia and presumably now they've become extinct from Europe to people who are more um, more prepared to interpret cryptid accounts as a socio-cultural phenomenon which is certainly the way I think about these things these days um, it seems more likely that the features that people ascribe to these kind, kinds of creatures trolls and mystery hominids are basically mythological motifs that are kind of like repeatedly associated with a certain kind of monster so for example things like uh yeah shaggy messy unkempt hair and living in the middle of the woods or the mountains and um a a fetid odor and back turned feet and all those sorts of things and and long pendulous breasts all all these creatures always have long pendulous breasts which i think (laughs) is unusually i should say unusually long pendulous breasts so much so that when they when they're running downhill they're supposed to like flop their breasts over their shoulders which which is a is a troll thing and there's actually Lars thomas spoke about a troll whose whose name translates as floppy tits and, and it's like it's like that tradition is kind of like continued well into the certainly the, the, the 20th century by you know like yeti accounts the same kind of thing and mm. and as you know the some of the north american sasquatch accounts um the anatomy of their of their breasts is like again sort of a uh, a crucial component of alleged eyewitness encounters. So I think you can make, again, you know, if, if you're a literalist, then you're thinking of, ah, oh, those are biologically plausible characteristics. Or if you're interested in the folklore, the psychology, the sociology, those are mythological motifs that are like continued through 
these carried through traditions and legends and it's basically people just copying stuff that they've heard in legends before um so overall and and, and, and of course the, the the movie troll hunter was uh, was mentioned quite a bit because that's you seen that film no, troll hunter it. oh it's great it's really good but make sure you do not watch do not watch the dubbed version because that's terrible the the original the original one in norwegian is, is great um, and there was also to read the subtitles, Darren. Jeez. No, no, it's not. I don't care about reading subtitles. It's the, it's the, um, it's the voices they've dubbed in. The voices yes. they've dubbed in are terrible because it's for people who dub in the the voice talents, the people who who um, provide English voices for non English speaking films. There are about five of them. So, <laughs> well, certainly that's my impression. <laughs> so every single every single time you watch. You watch like a European, a continental cartoon or a movie from whatever genre, if you get what I'm saying. Um, they always have the same, the same voice, <laughs> the same like two women and the same two guys do all these voices. And it just, just was, just was terrible. There was also, a, so the, there's the London Cryptozoology Club. Did you know there's a thing called the London Cryptozoology Club? I didn't. We, I should join. Well, they've invited me to speak, and it was for some reason when I was away. But they—I I can't remember his name, I'm afraid. But um, a member of their group gave gave a talk on Sasquatch, and he spoke about the whole, among other things, he spoke about the whole Melba Ketchum stuff, and mm. um, it was it was interesting. But it was—I uh, don't know—without I, I, I don't want to be negative, but it was a little frustrating because he didn't seem to bring in any of the the more critical discussions there have been, shall we say, of the Ketchum DNA study. And of course, we'll refer listeners here to the, uh, which episode is it? The Sasquatch episode we did? I think it might be episode three, um, featuring the big the features of Bigfoot's feet. Yeah. Um, yes, episode three, which is our special on uh, Bigfoot. And we go into quite a lot of depth about the mm. Ketchum mm. Uh, let's call it a debacle. It is absolutely. I, I also I gave a talk on Tetchbod Zoology at Weird Weekend. Basically, uh, and it's available online if people want to watch it. It's a, it's a bit weird uh, because it's just strange rambling discussion about various things that've been on Tetchbod Zoology over the past few years, ending ending with a discussion of um, speculative fiction and the Cryptozoologicon. Okay, yeah, let's wrap it up with the Cryptozoologicon. We're pretty much done on the Cryptozoologicon, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> we're going to have to work very, very, very hard to have this book out. Um, I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna make it. But geez, yes. But look, listen. It's on schedule. It's fine. It's gonna be brilliant. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I didn't yeah. say. The, when I mentioned the Adventure Time homage, it's done by John Francis Tamell. I should have mentioned his name, so thank you to thank you to him, John. Um, yes, we'll put that we'll put that on the um, the blog too, the Tetsu blog. That that means there's there's now like I don't know four or five bits of Tetsu fan art, at least two. Of, well, there's the yeah, I should I should put I should blog about them some 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 days. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Do what you like. Yeah. <laughs> that silly little blog of yours. Yeah, it's called. <laughs> um, yes. So, wrapping up, wrapping up. You think I would have uh, got, uh, got better at this, but I've got worse at this, haven't I? Okay. Definitely. 
Buy, buy, buy all yesterdays. Oh yeah, all yesterdays. Yeah, that's still a thing, you know. It's still a thing. <clears throat> John and I, and with our good friend Memo Kozman, published a book called All Yesterdays, available from all good digital, good digital retailers. There's also a book called <laughs> Ted Bodzology Book One, which is also available online, a very reasonable price, very collectible, oh, yeah. I understand. I yes. tweet at... Oh, no. <laughs> uh, Come on, at, at. I tweet at uh, 17.28. <laughs> Tezu. <laughs> have I got that right? I'm going to have to check now. 17. What happens if you Google 17.28? 17. Bear with me here. Decimal. Yeah, this, is, this is great radio. Yeah, great yes, radio. I'm, yes, I'm exactly right. One seven decimal two eight. I blog at at Tetsu. You don't blog at at, at Tetsu. You have a Twitter at, at, at Tetsu. Uh, uh, I tweet <laughs> at at Tetsu. I blog at Tetsuology. Currently hosted at Scientific American. Uh huh. I tweet at Nike Terrace. Nike Terrace. Terrace. <laughs> Nike Terrace. Um. I have a website, johnconway.co, where I also have a blog. It's a Tumblr blog, if you're on Tumblr. Um, what else? Um... Actually, can you cut that out? Because I did that a couple of episodes ago. That's really lame. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>